It's good to be with you all again. Please take out your scriptures and open to Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to be looking at the second half of that chapter together this morning. I don't know if you were alive. Some of you weren't alive in 1983. Some of you were, and and maybe if you were, you remember that on November 20th, there was kind of a a moment in American history. Because on that date, there was a television program that was watched by more than 100 million households. It was a made-for-TV movie called The Day After. And it set the record for the highest rating of any TV program in history at the time. It was set in the context of the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia. And the movie tells of a, of a fictional, full-blown nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States. But this movie was kind of unique in one way because it focused not on the nuclear exchange so much, but on the fallout afterwards. The horror of the days and the weeks after the blasts occurred. It showed the deadly effects of radiation poisoning and the the degradation of society. If you were alive in 1983, you remember that this was a real moment in time for America. It was a collective aha, almost, that we we realized in the midst of the Cold War that, that the nuclear exchange wasn't really the big issue. It was the fallout afterwards. Two weeks ago, we began to look at chapter 11. And chapter 11, basically, one way to look at chapter 11 is it's the fallout of chapters 8 and 9. It's the results of what Jesus was doing in chapters 8 and 9. If you recall those chapters, Jesus set out after sending the disciples out. He, he presumably went alone to the region in northern Galilee, teaching and preaching in that region, spending time in in what has become known as the evangelical triangle of that area, Corazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And his message was full of grace and mercy of God found in the gospel. And he visibly showed this grace and mercy through healing, right? If you remember chapters 8 and 9, you have those nine healings representative of many, many, many others that he did in that area. He healed blind people and deaf people, mute and crippled. And he also cast out demons, right? And he raised the dead. And those chapters begin and end with he healed every disease and every affliction giving evidence to his, his graceful and merciful ministry. 
That was the blast, so to speak, chapters 8 and 9. And chapter 11 is the fallout of that ministry. Look with me, starting in verse 16 of chapter 11. Jesus says these words. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We'll stop there for a moment. Two weeks ago, we learned that the first fallout of Jesus' ministry in in verses 1 through 15, was doubt, right? The first fallout was doubt of his ministry. Verse 3, we read there that John the Baptist is actually doubting. He's in jail, and he's doubting that the person that he had pointed to and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's doubting that Jesus is that person because of his ministry of mercy and grace, right? He was expecting judgment and justice. And he got Jesus coming with mercy and grace. So he's sitting in jail and he goes, is this the guy? His ministry certainly isn't what I expected. So the fallout of Jesus' ministry in John's mind was doubt. And we explored that two weeks ago. But we see here in verses 16 through 19 a second fallout of Jesus' ministry, and that is dissatisfaction. We see a fallout of Jesus' mercy and grace, his ministry of preaching the gospel of mercy and grace, is dissatisfaction. You can hear the holy frustration in Jesus' voice, can't you? John came doing this, and I came doing this, and I can't win, so to speak. You see, John came living this ascetic life. He lived the life of a a Nazarite vow. That's what the angel told Zechariah, his father, to have him take a Nazarite vow. According to number six, it was an austere life. They let their hair grow during this vow period. They were abstained from any fermented drink, including wine which is common in that time. They were never to touch things that made them unclean. That included things like Gentiles and sinners and lepers and dead bodies. By the way, all of which typifies Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? That's what he was doing in in chapters 8 and 9. That's his ministry. He mingled with the unclean Gentiles, didn't he? He touched and healed dead bodies and lepers. He reached out and touched them and horrified a lot of people. He befriended sinners. He dined with outcasts. Like Matthew, the tax collector, who is writing this very account of Jesus' life. What a pattern for us, brothers and sisters. And the fallout of that 
life, that, that ministry is dissatisfaction in the people. Some people rejected him because he was not ascetic enough. Other people rejected him because he was too ascetic. Some rejected him because he was dining with sinners. Others because he was not doing so. Some rejected him because he was not merciful enough. Others rejected him because he was, he was too merciful. And we hear in these four verses that, that kind of holy frustration. I mean, we can't, brothers and sisters, we can't read the Bible in a vacuum. Jesus had emotion. Not sinful emotion, but certainly he had a kind of a holy frustration in saying these, these verses. No matter what he did, he could not please people. They were dissatisfied whether he abstained or not. And so what does he do? He actually compares them to little children. Little immature children, right? I remember years ago, it is years ago now, Finnegan was a baby, he was in a high chair, and we were feeding him one night. And a dear friend of the family had given actually each of the children a personalized plate. And it wasn't plastic, it was, it was a nice plate, a breakable plate. And they had each of the children's names inscribed on it. And so we would use that from time to time when we fed the kids when they were babies. And at this particular night, Finnegan had his special plate, but he was, he was not having anything that we were feeding him. We would try feeding him the chicken. I can't remember what we were having. And he was not having any of that. And we tried the vegetables and not having any of that. We even probably, I can't remember, we even probably tried the mighty Cheerio. And he wouldn't have any of that. And at one point, Finnegan took that plate and he threw it on the floor and it shattered. Showing his dissatisfaction with anything that we would possibly give him. That's what Jesus is expressing here. People, no matter what he did, they were dissatisfied. John came doing this, I came doing the other, and you won't accept either of us. That's the kind of attitude prevalent a lot of times when you and I share the hope of Jesus Christ with somebody, isn't it? That's, that's the, this, this type of dissatisfaction with whatever we present. I mean, from our perspective, from a believer's perspective, who would reject the offer that Jesus is making? Have you ever sat back and thought about that? Why would anybody say no to that? Why would anybody be satisfied with that? Who would reject a free gift? Here's a free gift. Now, too easy. Who would reject an offer of peace and hope in their life? Why would anyone reject the offer found in verses 38, 39, I mean 28, 29, and 30? Look with me at those. 
This is what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Who would reject that? Who would say, no, I don't want a light burden. I want a heavy burden. I want to carry all my sorrows, all my shame. I was talking to a a gentleman this week, and we were just talking about Christ. I don't and And he was asking me, what is he... He feels such a burden, and and how is he going to carry this burden? And I started sharing. It was just, it was like I was meant to be in this text for this man. And I explained to him that God does not want him to carry this burden that he was describing, He actually wants you to give it to Him so that. Your burden is light. I said, you could continue to carry that burden, but it's a heavy burden, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, Jesus wants to take it from you. I don't know if he did that. But people want to keep their burdens even though Jesus says I'll carry it for you it's kind of like Pilgrim's Progress if you've read that you you get pretty early on to that place where there's a, a hill and a cross on a hill and that's where Bunyan is showing Pilgrim coming to faith and if you've read Pilgrim's Progress you know that the the buckles on his backpack just release and this heavy pack that he was carrying all this way so far rolls down the hill and into an empty tomb that's what Jesus does he takes that but we can explain that and explain that and it sounds how can you resist that Yet, they do. William Barclay wrote, The plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening. They do not even try to be consistent in their criticism, he writes. They will criticize the same person or the same institution from quite opposite grounds and reasons. If people are determined to make no response, he concludes, they will remain stubbornly and sullenly unresponsive no matter what invitation is made of them. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what our experience tells us. That's why you can't apologize somebody into the faith, can you? You know, apologetics is, you know, heralded as, as the key If you know enough how to answer enough questions right, people will just start being slayed in the spirit in front of you. I don't know. It doesn't work that way. 
You cannot apologize somebody into the faith. Because even if you take all their arguments away, they'll be dissatisfied. They won't listen to the truth. Brothers and sisters, that's why we have to present the gospel when we share it with people. We have to tell them, and we have to believe ourselves, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, as it says in Romans 1.16. That's where the power resides. Not in our winsomeness, not in our apologetics. You have to tell people, we, people do not need to hear your story of how God changed you. It's wonderful. And he does change you. And that is powerful for people to hear. But that's not what is going to change them. That's not what is going to pierce their dissatisfaction. People don't need to see, need to see your good and moral life. I beg you not to live by the adage, preach the gospel always, sometimes use words. I beg you not to live by that adage. Most Mormons live much more moral lives than you or I. People do not need to have all their objections answered. Although we should study to make ourselves approved, although we should be ready to give an answer for all those who ask of the hope we have, 1 Peter 3.15, although we should, that is not ultimately is what is going to make a person say, I can give my burden up? No, people need to hear the gospel. People need to hear about Jesus' perfectly lived life. They need to hear that he lived a perfect life. Because God's standard is perfection. And you need to tell people that. God's standard is perfection. And you can't do it. You can't live that perfect life. You can't fulfill all the law. That burden is too heavy. But I know one who says, I'll do it for you. That your burden is light. People need to hear that. People need to hear that Jesus substituted himself for them, for their sins. That Jesus took the punishment that they deserve. That Jesus suffered the suffering that we deserve for our sins. People need to hear that. People need to hear that the wages of their sin is actually death. And they need to hear about the one who died for them. People need to hear about his curse-killing resurrection. People need to hear that Jesus actually physically died and physically rose from the dead. And by doing that, he conquered the Genesis 2 curse. If you eat, you will surely die. They need to hear that if they put their trust in Jesus, that that curse is wiped away and eternity starts right then. 
We need to be a people that say, like Paul, I resolve to know nothing, nothing, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The power of the gospel is the only thing that pierces their dissatisfaction. And then, people, we have to pray. We have to pray. We have to pray for people's conversion. Do you pray for people's conversion by name? Do you have a little list somewhere that you're praying for people? Do you have it in your wallet or your purse, on your computer, on your mirror, on your refrigerator? We have to pray for people's conversion. Because people coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not a method or a strategy or about winsomeness or apologetics. Conversion is a mighty spiritual act of God. That's what Jesus is telling us. Look at verse 27. He says it right here. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son Except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. People's dissatisfaction will fade only as Jesus chooses them. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. Why else would we pray? If you think God isn't sovereign in salvation, you'll take all these methods and you'll depend on them. If God is sovereign in salvation, you'll pray. We need to be a people of prayer. Third fallout of Jesus' ministry is indifference. You have doubt, dissatisfaction, and you also have indifference. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, told a story about a goose who was wounded and landed in a barnyard with some chickens. He began to play with the chickens and ate with the chickens. After a while, that goose began to think he was a chicken. One day, a flight of geese came over, migrating to their home. They gave a honk up there in the sky, and the goose heard it. And the goose looked up. And began to open up his wings. But then folded them back down. And settled back into the barnyard mud. He heard the call. But he settled for less. That's what happens to many, many people spiritually. They hear the call of the gospel. They hear the call to come home. They hear the call of hope and peace and rest. They hear the call to something higher, more grand, more eternal. And they look up for a moment. Maybe you've had these conversations. You see them kind of lean forward a little. And then they settle back. And Although, from our point of view, that that is very sad. 
That should make us very sad when somebody sit, leans forward and they hear the gospel and then leans back. But what Jesus is telling us here is something quite terrifying. That that, that action is condemnable. Look with me at verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Indifference to the gospel is a condemnable offense before God. Indifference when you hear the gospel as an unbeliever is a condemnable offense before God. Jesus spent the most the majority of his time in the, those three cities. Some commentators say he spent up to 80% of his ministry up there. 80%. He preached and he taught, he healed and he raised the dead. He pointed over and over and over again, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You'll find rest in me, come to me. Yet the people in those cities, like that goose, looked up, leaned forward a little bit, and then sat back down. Settling into their unbelief and indifference. You see, Jesus comes towards doubters like Thomas. He comes towards doubters like you and me. But he condemns the indifferent. Jesus is with us in our struggle and doubt. But he casts the indifferent aside. In Revelation, the church of Laodicea had grown indifferent to Christ, hadn't it? You remember the words... I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm, because you are indifferent, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. King James works really well there. John MacArthur wrote, Indifference is a heinous form of unbelief. It so completely disregards God that he is not even an issue worth arguing about. He's not taken seriously enough to even criticize. And that's what we see Jesus condemning here. These cities where Jesus spent most of his time completely disregard him. Those people who had the most light shed on them and to them did not even think he was an issue worth arguing over. They were lukewarm. 
And I think we learn three things about God's judgment in, in these verses. And the first thing is, it is deserved. His judgment is deserved. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It tells us that we naturally follow the ways of the world. It tells us that we naturally follow the kingdom of this, the king of this world right now, which is Satan. And when you hear that Jesus willingly takes your punishment for such disobedience and offers you a new will, a new heart, a new life, a new lease on life, a new future, the proper and right and good response to that, Jesus says, is repentance. James Boyce wrote, God is merciful to many, but God owes mercy to no one. The judgment is deserved. The second thing we notice is that God's punishment is horrible. God's punishment is horrible. Jesus mentioned Sodom's punishment. Sodom and Gomorrah were twin cities. They were cities full of, of sexual perversion, including homosexuality. And their judgment by God was horrific. So horrific was that judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah are, are upheld throughout Scripture as examples of God's judgment, examples of God's punishment for sin. Yet Jesus is saying that Capernaum, where he spent most of his time, that we, we don't, I'm sure that there was sexual perversion there, but not to the extent that Sodom's was. That the Capernaum will be judged more harshly. That their judgment will be horrific. I mean, God rained down fire and sulfur on Sodom. So much so that it decimated the area, that, that it couldn't be inhabited for centuries. Yet Capernaum's will be worse. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment and punishment are part, part of the fear of God. Not all, but it has to be in there. They're to be feared. Matthew 8, earlier, Jesus describes it as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, I mean, the scripture describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire. Describes it as a furnace. Describes it as a place of eternal conscience, conscious suffering. Place of no rest, no light, no relationships. A place where there, the presence of God is withdrawn. And when we repent of our sins and we believe in Christ, we're saved from that. Have you ever wondered why we say we're saved? Have you ever wondered why the Bible uses terms like rescued, redeemed from, delivered from? 
Or do we just, I mean, like I do, just read over those and don't think of it? We're rescued from something. We're delivered from hell. We're rescued from hell. We're saved from hell. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful piece of news of the gospel. Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. My goodness. This is a great truth. And our reaction should be one of gratefulness and praise. The third thing we learn about God's judgment, his punishment is God's punishment is measured. It's different on different people. Two young men were arrested robbing a service station. And when they went to trial, one of the men had four or five high-powered lawyers sitting with him. His family was wealthy. The other boy had a court-appointed lawyer. He had been in reform school and spent two years in juvenile detention hall. The two boys were obviously guilty. They had been caught right in the act. After hearing the defense, the judge sentenced the boy who had been in juvenile detention to three years. The other boy, same act, ten years. Well, the lawyers for that boy were outraged and they demanded that the judge explain himself. And the judge said this, This boy is a graduate of Choate Preparatory School of Yale and of Yale University. His father is an outstanding man in the community. Tremendous opportunities were made available to him. Yet he turned against all that he knew to be right. He turned against the code of ethics of his family, his school, his university, and the society he grew up in. He deserves worse punishment, the judge said. In essence, that's what Jesus is saying here. Chorazin, Bethesda, Capernaum. He spent most of his time there. He showed who he was. He proclaimed who he was. He shed a lot of light there. And they turned away. They are going to be more culpable on the day of judgment because of what they know. The more divine revelation given, the more culpability before God. The more knowledge of God's mercy found in Christ, the more responsible you will be when you stand before him. The more access to truth, the more answerable to God. The more light given, the greater the darkness. Jesus emphasized this at the end of his parable of the wedding feast in Luke 12 by saying that the servant who knew his master will but did not get ready or act according to his will 
will receive severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will be beaten with less strokes. And then he ends by saying, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And from him whom they entrust much, they will be demanded more. Now, we're not told what this looks like in Scripture. We're told that there are degrees. We're not told what it looks like. I mean, Dante kind of imagined it as the nine circles of hell, if you've read that. But I do say, along with James Boyce, this. When I think of the opportunities to believe in Christ that have been given to the people of America in our day, I tremble for America. And if you, if you're sitting here and listening to this and don't know Christ, you on the live stream, if you're sitting at home, you are now more culpable. You're now answerable before God for more. That's why I've said many times over the years here that church is a, is a dangerous place to, to a degree. As you sit here and listen, as you come and, you, and, you, and we work through the word together in the back room, as you're sitting at your discovery groups and working through the word, as you're in your one-on-one discipleships and working through the word of God, you are becoming more culpable before God. So what do we do? What do we do with that burden? That's a heavy burden. Are you feeling it? I felt it all week. Is it heavy? What do we do? We run to our fallout shelter. That's what we do. We run to the fallout shelter. You turn to Jesus. You run to Jesus. Look at how Jesus, and I'll read it again, beckons us in chapter 11, 28, 29, and 30. He beckons us. Come to me. He flings open the fallout shelter and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Run to Jesus. When you feel that burden, run to Christ. He's taken it. He's taken it all for you and for me. On October 10th, 2016, and Wanzhou, China, a six-story residential building collapsed because of faulty construction. After 12 hours of digging through the debris, they found a lone survivor, a three-year-old girl. Everybody else was crushed. She survived because her father had arched his body over hers to protect her from a falling pillar. He was crushed, but she was saved. One reporter told... One worker told the reporters 
the child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. Trust in Christ. He provides that life, that, that nook, that, that cleft that we sing of. He'll protect us from the wrath of God. We like to fool ourselves into thinking that, that we can save ourselves. We think, you know, if I'm good enough, and I'm moral enough, I've had a nice enough guy. If I'm generous enough, if I work for nonprofits enough, God will recognize that. That's 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 about as silly as duck and cover. Do you remember duck and cover? And they showed this these these little. Uh, short films in the 50s when the nuclear risk was high and they they were teaching us and, and young kids to when they see a nuclear blast to get underneath their their desks and cover their heads with their hands thinking that you can be good enough or moral enough or a nice enough guy to evade the judgment and wrath of God on the final day is as silly as duck and cover in a nuclear blast. The only thing that can possibly save you from the coming nuclear blast of God's judgment is Jesus Christ. He swings the door open to the fallout shelter himself. And he says, come, come. He he put his hands out on the cross and he said, come, come. I'll arch my body and take the crushing blow and create for you a life-giving space. Won't you come? Come? That's Jesus' message. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and for the amazing life-giving space that you have provided for each one of us if we will only come. Soften our hearts. For those who have heard this message, who have not given their life to you, who have not trusted in you, beckon them one more time. Come. In Jesus' name.